Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving that was rich with the knowledge of all we have to be thankful for in Christ Jesus. And uh, I know many are still traveling and with family, so we need to be praying for them even as we're apart this Sunday. But we have come to Advent season. Advent means coming, and it's an opportunity for us together to stand amazed and gaze afresh at the first coming of our Lord Jesus and all that God wrought for us and accomplished for us in His first coming, and to long for His return. This is part of the fabric of what it means to be the people of God and what has marked the people of God uh, since God first set apart a people for His own namesake, was that we would be longing for deliverance, longing for His salvation. And uh, it's wonderful that Advent comes at the end of a year that's marked by joys and sorrows that have given us a a fresh table set for longing for the return of Christ, longing for His deliverance and a, a refresher this Advent season to be looking to Him in hope. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to go to the very middle of your Bible and then flip to your right, and you'll find Isaiah's prophecy. We are going to be in Isaiah 9 all month long as we look at this glorious promise of the Son who would come and establish His good reign over His people. And we have to remember as we go to Isaiah's promise and prophecy that this was written 730 years before Jesus' birth. And so we have nested in this all of God's sovereignty and His power and His love and His faithfulness that He would even make us a promise concerning His Son, that He would give us a Son to make a promise about, and that He would give us these precious promises that are all meaningful to us about the coming King and the nature of His kingdom. And so truly He was from the garden on a long-expected Jesus, and we worship Him this Advent season. So if you have a Bible, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we long to come and see Jesus. I pray that this Advent season and this morning that you would find in us humble and hungry hearts that the wonder of what you have done and of who you are would not be muted by familiarity, but that we would come afresh and adore you and worship you. Lord, we praise you for the promises nested here in your word. Help us to unpack them and unfold them. Would you unfold your scriptures to us like you did for your disciples on the Emmaus Road? Show us Jesus in all these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is not going to be primarily about government, but I was thinking about this promise that the government would be on his shoulders. That's what we're talking about this morning. And you don't have to be a sociologist to look around and see the hope that people put in government. It is probably the most massive idolatry of our time that people believe that life's problems and that life's solutions can be found by having the right people in office. If we can just have the right form of government, then we can secure our ideal way of life as we define it. So there is massive difference among people on what those ideals should be, but the commonality is that we believe that if we get the right leadership in place over our government, then we can actually secure these ideals and the life that we long for. And there was a, a brother who used to be a part of this church who has moved to Tennessee, John Rush. He was a professor of economics at Marlboro College, and he would give a class, and he would talk about the failures of all different forms of government. And he would leave the class kind of at the end like, well, that was pretty hopeless. I mean, you just basically took this side and this form of government and showed its failures and its immorality, and then you show the corruption on this side of things, and you just kind of left us hopeless or wanting or longing. And he said, yes, because the, the best form of government that everybody longs for is to be under the reign of a good king. And we have, ever since the garden and the rejection of God's good government, have fallen into the domain of darkness where we are left with mankind trying to establish the kingdom of Christ without the king. To insert ourselves as the king and trying to come up with our own solutions and our own government. But there is one king and one government who is king over all. That the kingdoms of this world are but a shadow for. And so you can see and everybody's longing for the right form of government that will create peace, that will create righteousness, that will create uh, the, their view of what a right existence would look like. That is a good and a right longing, but it is misplaced. 
because they're looking to the governments of people instead of the government of a good king on whose shoulders the true government rests. And so we are going to be looking at, in Isaiah 9, this advent, this true king, this true son of David who was promised from the Father who would reign over his people and over all the world forever. So um, our, our family is going through Advent already right now um, and kind of unpacking the story of the promise of Jesus from creation all the way to the manger. And we have seen that uh, God created the heavens and the earth and all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And then from the very first moment that sin entered into the world, God promised a coming seed who would crush the head of a serpent and bring about victory for his people. And so when we talk about we need to be mindful that all of Israel's history is just pregnant with this longing, this hope for deliverance, that they believe that this deliverance could happen at any moment. And so with every birth of a new son, you have to be with them and thinking, could this be the promised deliverer? Could this be the one? And then God calls out Abraham for himself, and he gives them the promise of the land that we will one day inherit, the ultimate promised land, and of the offspring, the Lord Jesus, who would come. And he says, I will bless all the nations of the earth through you and through your offspring. And so all throughout Israel's history, we see this narrowing effect of God's promise of one day there is coming a deliverer who will, who will crush the head of the serpent and give deliverance to his people. And then it gets narrowed down, not just the seed of a woman, but the seed of Abraham. And then we travel further. And so with every birth of every son after Abraham, it's, is this the seed? Is this the promised one? Is, is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Okay, it's, no, it's not him. Is it going to be through Judah and Judah's line? And then eventually we come to David, and God gives a similar promise to David that it was through David's line that this coming offspring would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, and he would be a ruler, and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And so that is the promise that Isaiah is picking up on here in Isaiah chapter 9. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at and give some context to the longing for the son of David. So you can get with Israel in this time and know where they are and what context this promise is coming into because there's some confusing language and you're left wondering, all right, is this for them or is it just about Christ and is it for us? So we're going to look at the longing for the son of David, the arrival of the son of David, and then his kingdom that will have no end. So first, the longing. When we say Jesus Christ, what you are saying is Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised son of David. So Christ is a title. When we talk about David's anointed, we're talking about David's Christ. This was the promised one who was going to be the king of all kings. And so you remember that in God's promise to Abraham, he promised to make him a nation. And God kept that promise, and he created the nation of Israel. And Israel rejected God's good rule as their rightful king, and they wanted a king for themselves, to be like the nations who had kings. But God took even their wrong longings to replace him as their king, to 
write a story where he would raise up for them a king after his own heart who would do all his will, who would be a picture of the rightful king to come, and that was King David. David's story is one of God's favor and God's forgiveness and his grace, and God used David to establish Israel's kingdom. That is the way that he was a picture of his own son in the establishing of his kingdom. But David, when he wanted to build a temple for the worship of God, he had established peace. All of the enemies of the land had been conquered, and he was wanting to build God a temple saying, I live in this amazing house, and God's Ark of the Covenant is in this tent, so I'm going to build a house for God. And this is where we see the promise of God to David in what is known as the Davidic Covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is verse 11 through 16. This is the Lord saying, David, you're not going to build me a house. We find out later, David was a man of bloodshed, and so God was going to let Solomon, his son, build the house. But God comes over the top of David's offer to build God a house. God says, I'm not, I don't live in a house made by human hands, but I will build you a house. So that's verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So if you're paying attention, that's confusing a little bit because you see this offspring has iniquity and when he commits sin, that God would not take his steadfast love from him. So it's very important as you read these Old Testament promises, we're learning how to read the Bible together, right? There is in Bible prophecy speaking to the immediate context right here and right now. And you have in David's immediate sons, immediate fulfillment of this promise. So in part of this promise, he's talking about Solomon, who would actually build the temple and build God's house. And God is telling him, when your son commits iniquity, I will not remove my steadfast love from you and from your family, that I am making this promise to you, and one of your sons who will come through your line will reign forever. And we know that this was ultimately about a coming son of David who was Solomon's reign came and went. You can look at the reign of Solomon, and if you don't know the rest of the story, and you're reading it, you're thinking, is this the promised Messiah? There is peace and prosperity everywhere in Solomon's reign. But then he gives himself to foreign alliances through the marrying of many wives and many concubines and is incredibly sinful and breaking God's law on that front. And idolatry is introduced to Israel through the wives of Solomon. But this was the promise that as before all that happened, as Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says, Lord God, keep your servant 
Keep your servant, David, my father, keep your promise to him. You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. So this promise was conditional. This promise was based on the son of David obeying God and keeping his rule and keeping his way, and then he would establish his throne forever. So Solomon corrupted himself with many wives and introduced their gods to the people. And then we see that God rips the kingdom away from Solomon and the kingdom is divided. God says to Solomon, you have not kept my covenant. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And so after only one generation of this massive promise to David concerning his sons, there's incredible idolatry and division. And over and over again, this is the theme. If you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you will see that again and again, there are kings that are raised up and they either do what is evil in the sight of the Lord or they do what is right in the sight of the Lord, but not like their father David. And so there's this continual hope that one of these sons is going to be the son that was promised. And then again and again, we see failure, failure, sin, failure. And so it's into that context that Isaiah's prophecy comes because Israel had failed in giving themselves to idolatry so much. In Isaiah 8, it says that people were not seeking out God in his, in his testimony anymore, that they were acting contemptuously against the law of God and actually going to necromancers and to mediums to seek counsel. And God was bringing against his own people judgment and discipline in the form of the Assyrian army who was going to take Israel away into captivity. So if, if you're not familiar with the history of what's recounted in the Old Testament or Israel, the northern kingdom is carried into captivity by the Assyrians in 722, and Judah is carried into captivity by the Babylonians in 605. And so there's this history where it seems like God is done with his people. They've sinned too much. They've gone too far. Anybody ever felt like you've been there? That God was just done with his people. And it's into the midst of these disciplines, into the hopelessness and sinfulness of his people. Literally, in, in Isaiah 8, God is describing Assyria coming in, and it's describing like this massive bird that just comes in and fills the land. And it says that, it will rise up and fill your land, O Emmanuel. So there is both judgment and captivity and hope in the midst of it because Emmanuel means God with us. So you have to hear the devastation that this is the land that was promised to Abraham. This is God's seed that he promised would be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. And all of it was being completely undone by Israel's sin. They were at the very bottom of God's faithfulness coming again and again through all these kings. And he kept on raising up good kings, but they didn't walk all the way in keeping with their father, David. And it was just this spiral downward from the prosperity that Solomon enjoyed and inherited from David all the way down to captivity. It was just digression and sin and corruption. 
And yet, Isaiah's text comes to us this morning to say captivity would not be the end of the story for God's people. That there was covenant promises that God had made to David and to Israel that were rooted in his heart and not in their sufficiency or their merit or in their obedience. That yes, Assyria would sweep in and they would overflow the land, but it would still be Emmanuel's land and he would still be God with us. That there was one coming still in the midst of all of Israel's unfaithfulness and in the midst of all of their disobedience, they could not undo the purpose of God to show them kindness and to bring about salvation and the deliverance that they could not bring about for themselves. So Jeremiah also prophesied in the land of, so he was prophesying during Judah's captivity, about 130 years after Isaiah. And he gives similar promises and similar hope in the midst of devastation and loss. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5 through 6, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is a a staggering promise in the midst of Israel disobeying so much that, and given to so much idolatry that they're sent into captivity. And he's saying, God is still going to keep his promise. He's going to send a savior and he will be called the Lord is our righteousness because where all of David's sons failed and were unable to keep the law, unable to keep the requirements of the covenant, he will come himself and the Lord will be our righteousness. He will come and uphold the righteous requirements of the law and of the covenant of David, and he will be himself the promised son of David. So you have in this longing for the son, this promise of the son of David, and then this context that looks like it had undid, it undid all of it. But in this passage, you have the promise reassured. Just like with Jeremiah, as he promised the righteous branch that would come and be our righteousness, that is what he's, Isaiah is doing in Isaiah chapter 9, giving us reassurance in the midst of much disobedience and waywardness that the son of David was still coming to establish his righteous rule in his reign. So look at verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This promise is coming into the the anguish and the darkness of people forsaking the law of God and going and seeking out counsel and necromancers and mediums and scorning God to his face, his own people. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and to the land of Naphtali. That's representative of the northern kingdom that Assyria was coming against. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He says the people who walked in darkness, which they were living in now, they they will have seen in great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Some believe that this promise was only concerning Hezekiah because that is the immediate context, that there was going to be this child born, this son that was given, who's a descendant of David, and he's going to bring about peace. This language that is a little bit confusing in verses 4 through 5 is talking about the end of their warfare. All the, the battle garb and the things that they would wear for warfare, all the rod of the oppressors were going to be completely broken by God, and he was going to bring about peace. And so in Hezekiah's day, he is said to have walked with God and to have feared him and to have obeyed him with all of his heart and soul like his father David. But then Assyria still comes against them because he cannot cause the people to obey. So as righteous as the king was, the people still broke the covenant of God and transgressed God's law. And so you can read it in 2 Kings 18. We don't have time to go there. The king of Assyria carries the Israelites away. It says, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord of their God, but transgressed his covenant. This was during the reign of Hezekiah. So even after these promises were given, you're still left with this longing and this waiting. It was not yet. But beyond Hezekiah, looking to a future son of David, there would be one who would come and multiply the nation's joy. And he would break the yoke that was on them as on the day at Midian. Now, all right, let's step back for a second. Kind of take a breather because it's a lot of Bible study. You ready? The day at Midian is a reference to Judges chapter 7 to the story of Gideon. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but it is awesome and miraculous. Gideon has this huge army, and God whittles his army down so that the coming victory would be shown to be of God and not of the strength of man. So he whittles Gideon's army down to 300, and then... You may remember this story, how they have a trumpet in one hand and torches in the other, and they make loud noises, and then the enemy wakes up in the middle of the night freaking out, and they all kill each other, and Israel doesn't lift a finger. And God works this great deliverance for Israel without them doing anything. And so throughout Israel's history, when they say, as on the day at Midian, they're saying God is going to work about a supernatural deliverance, and this is the standard of what supernatural deliverance, in spite of the weakness of man, in spite of the insufficiency of man, this is what that supernatural deliverance looks like. And so this promise is saying, God is going to come and work a supernatural deliverance for his people while they look on weaponless. There's going to be a salvation that is not secured by their own strength and their own righteousness but he's going to bring about deliverance himself. This prophecy, of course, is about the Lord Jesus himself coming to bring deliverance to his people. And there is great effort in the Gospels to show that Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy in others, that his, that his salvation and his deliverance would be gloriously observed from Galilee. And you can see that in the ministry of Jesus when his, his teaching ministry begins in Galilee and begins to reveal himself when he goes to 
unroll the scroll of Isaiah and turns to Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the captives and to set at liberty those who are bound. He is doing that in Galilee, giving light and revelation to people who have been dwelling in deep darkness. His first miracle at Cana of Galilee was where he would showcase his glory and first appear to these people who were dwelling at this time in darkness. And so we have this longing for the son of David, but now the arrival of the son of David. In verse 6 of Isaiah 9, he says, For to us a son is born, and to us, to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. I think it's so awesome that, yes, these promises most immediately were about Hezekiah, but looking beyond Hezekiah to the Lord Jesus, these promises are in the present tense. And when God's promises are in the present tense, he's saying, this is as good as done. This is sure. A child is given to you. Just like Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, God had it in his heart. There's nothing that their disobedience could undo that a child is given to them. A child is born to them, and his promise was sure. There was one who would sit on the throne forever and would indeed be a human from David's line. Now, this is the first promise in the Word of God that is most explicitly connecting the truth that the promised son of David would indeed be God in the flesh. So we are going to, over the next four weeks, unpack this description of the Lord Jesus in him being the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting father and the prince of peace. But here he's saying, this child is going to be born and this is going to be a human that comes through the offspring of a woman and he's going to be mighty God in the flesh. This is not some figurative language that could have just dead-ended at Hezekiah. You'll, you can go read all these people saying this was not about Jesus. This was about Hezekiah. This was for that time. But this was not some figurative language about him having a kingdom that wouldn't end or him being mighty God. This was actually one of David's sons being God the Son incarnate. Amazingly, he who dwelt with the Father from all of eternity past would humble himself to become a child given to us, to us. Why in Matthew chapter 1, so I want to take you through the Gospels to see some of these things fulfilled. In Matthew 1, the very first verse is this is a book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. And then what does he say? The son of David, the son of Abraham. This is, I want to show you in all this gospel that this is the promised offspring of Abraham and the promised son of David who would come to rule. When uh, the angel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. His name means Yahweh is salvation. He saves. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Or in Luke 10, the angels to the shepherds, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
This is not just for Jacob. This is not just for Israel. This is for all the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that Christ, he's saying, this is the son of David who is Lord over all, and he is being born unto you. And that language is the same language as Isaiah 9. For unto us is born the son of David who is coming to set his people free and to establish his righteous reign in all the earth. So listen in Matthew 4. If you, if you flip to Matthew 4 and you look at verse 15 and 16, you'll see probably a paragraph header in your Bible that's added to help you that says Jesus begins his ministry or something to that effect. And how Matthew is describing the beginning of Jesus's ministry is by quoting Isaiah chapter 9. It says, now when he had heard, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now don't miss the next verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is so glorious. If anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, do not listen to them. Anytime anybody tries to kill him, he would just claim to be God. And they just knew their Bibles better than we do. So this is Jesus saying, the kingdom is here because the king is here. This is the promised son of David arriving in the flesh, going around and preaching that all men everywhere should repent and come to him for life. But he came not as the Jews were expecting him. They were expecting this Christ who would overthrow the Romans and establish, just like he will at his second coming, establish his kingdom and his reign on the earth that would last forever, physically here, ruling, reigning, never dying, Israel having this kingdom that was just them over all the nations. And instead, Jesus came to establish his rule and his reign in the hearts of his people and to establish his righteousness on the earth. But he was coming to establish his reign, not just in the hearts of Jews, but in the hearts of all the nations. That the gospel is the power of salvation first to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so the light of the world came to his own so that those who dwelt in darkness could behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in his face. He was coming to work deliverance for his people, like at Midian, sovereignly, miraculously, while his people looked on, powerless, to do anything to protect themselves, to save themselves, to deliver themselves. He came to declare to us that our warfare was ended. This is the same language that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 40. It was quoting that there goes one before Jesus, prepare the way of the Lord. And he says, comfort, comfort my people. Declare to her that her warfare is ended. The prince of peace is here. He came to overcome sin and death and the devil. He came to overcome everything in your life. 
that causes you to long for solutions and good government to bring happiness or joy or peace to your life. But he came to win, not just establish his government here on earth, but to establish it cosmically over death and over the devil and over everything that stands between you and the Father. And so Isaiah describes the kingdom of the son of David. You can look at verse 6 and verse 7 with me back in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of this king's government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So God the Son came in the flesh to fulfill all the requirements of God's covenant with David. Jesus came to establish the reign of God on the earth and he fulfilled all the requirements of the law, all the requirements of God's covenant with David, and he demonstrated perfect humility and righteousness in his living and in his dying. So what is so striking when you look at God's promise that a king would come and would reign and rule over his people? And then how did Jesus do it? He came hidden. He came as a child, humbled before Heavenly Father. And he came righteous. He, God's word says that he was tempted like you and I are, and he never once committed any sin. There was never any deceit found in his mouth. That he lived a perfect righteous life before the Father. And he established righteousness in his example. But he continues to establish his kingdom of righteousness as he reigns in the hearts of his people and he conforms us to his image and makes us more righteous with his own righteousness. Philippians 2 says that he obeyed the Father all the way to the cross, keeping his perfect law, the law's righteous requirement, and that because he was, had this power of a righteous life, the grave could not keep him. But you think about it, Jesus went to the grave so that not just so that he could establish his reign here on earth, but that his dominion would spread even to death as he conquered death and rose to life and he would be ruler over all things, including death, that he would defeat sin and death and the devil. And then God highly exalted him, raising him from the dead, raising him to the throne over all, the throne of David where Jesus reigns forever as both the root of David and the promised seed of David. Romans 1, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, meaning God's representative, his righteous ruler on the earth, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And our text says both that the government is on his shoulder and that it is his government. So these are synonymous that there is the government 
over all the governments of the world. The king of all kings will rest on his shoulder. I was talking with my dad. He said, yeah, there's not, it's not just on his shoulders. The text says shoulder, and our translations may translate it shoulder, shoulders, but dad's like, he only needs one. He, he's, not, he's not trying to shoulder the load with a couple of shoulders that in Jesus' strength, by the power of his righteous right hand, he has established his reign and established his kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. There's no rival to his throne, that he has established his reign and his rule in righteousness, and he will uphold it forever. This was the promise of Daniel, who prophesied 100 years after Isaiah about the Son of Man and the Son of David being one in the same. Daniel saw in a vision that to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So I want to look at this last description of verse 7, and I just... I want it to fill us with longing because the kingdom is both here and it is coming. That these descriptions of Jesus' kingdom are both true in the here and now as Jesus rules and reigns and it has his rule expands. That's why in Isaiah, God, in Isaiah 55, God calls out to everyone, come you who thirst, come buy wine and milk and drink without cost. He says, listen diligently, Lead to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So he's saying you right now, here and now can enter into this same covenant that God gave to David and the benefits of the covenant that God gave to David. His steadfast love and his faithfulness are yours in Christ Jesus. And you can come and it's free. And so as believers, this Advent season, we are called both to rejoice in the reign of Christ Jesus, to have a security and a comfort in that God promised a righteous ruler who would come and he has come and he has established his reign. It's not just that he will one day, but that right now he has established his reign and he did it in a way that nobody saw coming by going to the cross and overcoming sin and death and the devil and raising from the dead. And right now it says that he, God has exalted him to the highest place so that right now he rules with absolute sway and authority over your life and over the world that he has made. And so we get to call people to come and to bow their knee to King Jesus and to come and enter into his kingdom where of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. And he's come to establish the nation, but also to multiply its joy that this is a righteous king with a righteous kingdom. And inside his kingdom, there is joy and peace that lasts forever. And just like his coming, it's hidden and unseen to the visible eye. You look around right now in our world We've been talking about this recently. If you just were to walk through Brattleboro, it does not look like Jesus reigns. Does it? Everybody with me? We here? 
Everybody's like, I don't know. It kind of looks like it does. It doesn't look like it to me, right? But when I look at your life and I see things in you that are God-like and I know who we were dead in our sin apart from the mercy and the grace of God, I see the reign of Jesus breaking in, establishing his rule, establishing his righteousness. And so his design is that his reign would spread and that his kingdom would come and his will would be done in Brattleboro as it is in heaven as he gets his righteous rule in the hearts of people. And so the invitation is open. Come. Come to him. He is coming and he will establish his reign here on the earth in person, but he is giving all people everywhere time to repent. And so come and embrace Christ Jesus as your king. What you are longing for in the world, in all of our pursuits of solutions by government, is a righteous and good king. You're longing for peace. You're longing for a kingdom in which righteousness reigns. And yes, we want to see that happen here on the earth. That's important. We want to see the governments of the world submit to the lordship of Christ because his government is over their government and he is Lord. And he calls them to submit to him and conform to him. But we also do so knowing and realizing that the kingdom that we're longing for is both already in the hearts of his people and not yet, and we're longing for it. And so um, I'm going to wrap up here. We're going to get more in the descriptions of Jesus as wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace. We're going to get to this increase of his peace and of the joy of his people. Uh, but it is real peace and real righteousness. And God has sworn by his own name that his zeal will accomplish this. That God's passion for his own glory, God's passion for the glory of Christ will accomplish both what he has already accomplished in Christ's first coming and that he will establish his kingdom and his reign on the earth. And you can read, I encourage you, write these down for your own study. You can go read Psalm 2 and look at how God has established his king in Zion and how the kingdoms of the world try to rebel against him, but he has established his rule and his reign. He invites people to come and submit to the king while there's still time. Or Psalm 89, where David's writing of his coming offspring, who would be the firstborn, the king of all the kings of the earth. And it is all this awesome prophecy uh, from David about the coming king. But I want you to consider as we close this verse from this song that we just sang before the message. This is of the Lord Jesus. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child, yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That encapsulates the heart of this message on the government being on the shoulders of King Jesus. By his merit alone, he establishes a rule and a reign and a kingdom that we could not enter into or establish of ourselves. And it's by his merit that he is called the Lord, our righteousness, the son of David, who 
is our righteousness and who brings us into his kingdom. And so our cry and our heart's prayer this Christmas season has to be, Lord, rule in my heart alone. That you are the king of all kings and there is no rival to your throne. So let there be no rival to you in my affections, no rival to you in my trust. If Jesus is king, then nothing else can be. And so our prayer in our heart needs to be as a church and as we walk this together, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in my heart as it is in heaven and in my neighbor's heart and in their life as it is in heaven and those far from you in their lives and in their heart as it is in heaven until Jesus' reign covers every nook and cranny of the earth, and he receives the glory that he is due from all of his people. Let's pray. Father, we want to delight in your sovereign goodness together. Lord, only you could act so providentially, so sovereignly over centuries to send forth a promise in your mercy, in your grace to an undeserving people that we would have the Lord Jesus himself as our king. We praise you for your sovereignty, the way that you work in and through the history and lives of men to establish and accomplish your purpose. Lord, I pray that our church would rest in the sufficiency and in security in the reign of Jesus, that our God reigns and you will forever. I think, I know I'm so prone to take the security of that for granted, that no one else is going to overthrow you or be able to snatch us out of your hands, that you reign forever. We praise you, Lord Jesus. You are our peace We praise you that you came to preach peace to us who were far off and to bring us near to the Father by your own blood. Lord, as we look to you this Advent season, would you come and reign in our hearts alone? We want to adore you together. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we want you to, through our lives and the ministry that you've entrusted to us, we want to see the reign of the Son of David expand into the hearts of our neighbors until your reign is in all the earth. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for the victory that you have won for your people while we looked on and only had to be silent. Lord, would you please do your work in our hearts this Advent season. May we worship you and adore you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.